Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Well, um, it's bank holiday weekend, and so I know we'll all be lazing around not doing very much, so I thought just for kind of 20, 25 minutes a day, I would work you a bit hard. We're going to tackle a very big question, one of kind of the biggest questions, actually, we can ask as humans. We're going to ask the question, why are we here? Why are any of us here? Why has God made you and me and placed us on the earth? And there are a few different answers you might give to that question. You might say that God has created you to love him, or that God's created you to worship him. You might say God has created you to care for the earth. And actually, all of those would have elements of truth in them. You find those answers in the Bible. But I think there's one answer which is even more fundamental, even more core, even more wonderful and amazing. And understanding why God has made us is really important. Because understanding what you're made for helps you know where you're going to find true fulfillment. If you think of Toy Story 3, Toy Story 3 teaches us that. By Toy Story 3, the owner of all the toys, Andy, has grown up. And they're just left in boxes and cupboards. And they feel so unfulfilled because they're created for children to enjoy playing with them. And yet they're not being used for that purpose. They're not being played with by kids. And so they go on this great quest to find children who will enjoy playing with them and then will kind of restore them to their purpose. And when that happens, they find, wow, we feel complete again. We feel like we've reached what we're made to do. Knowing why you're made helps you know uh, how to find true satisfaction in life. And the answer to this question, what has God made us for? Why are we here? Actually lies in our view of God. And our view of God is hugely important. How you view God will shape so much more of how you think about yourself and how you live your life. And yet it's something we often skip over, isn't it? We think, well, everyone knows who God is. It's kind of an obvious thing. It's a self-evident thing. When I say I believe in God, of course you know what I mean. But then we get times when someone will say something about God, and then someone else will go, oh, but my God's not like that, and my God's not like that. And suddenly you realize, actually, that maybe we're not all so much the same page anyway. Maybe it's not so obvious, so self-evident who God is and what he's like. It's a bit like we take the word and all of us actually put in our own meanings and we have this own picture of who God is. But actually, as Christians, we want to listen to what the Bible says. We want to see what has God revealed in his own word to us about himself. And there are two types of God you could imagine. On the one hand, there's the lone ranger God who's kind of there on his own, bit of a loner. But on the other hand, there's what the Bible reveals to us, which is a triune God, a God who is three in one, who for all eternity has existed in Trinity. Now, if God is a kind of lone ranger God, a single God, he's always existed on his own. That means there's never been anyone or anything for him to love until he created something. And that means that a lone ranger God can't be all-loving. If there's nothing for you to love, then you can't be loving. If you imagine that you've been brought up all your life in the confines of an empty room, you couldn't actually be a loving person because there was nothing for you to love. In order to be loving, there has to be an object for you to love. And a lone ranger God who's there on his own for all eternity, until he makes something, there's nothing for him to love. He couldn't be all loving. The alternative is you can have lots of different gods, lots of mini-gods, but actually even then there's no guarantee they're going to get on. They might well love each other, but actually they might well battle with each other and get angry with each other and argue with each other. There's no guarantee. There's no way that they can be gods who are love all the time. And a God who isn't all-loving actually creates out of need. A God who's not all-loving creates because he needs something. He needs something from this creation. Ultimately, a God who's not all-loving creates servants, creates slaves who are just there to do things for him. 
And ultimately, his creation is always selfish. And there's a great example of this that comes from the ancient civilization of Babylon. You might have heard of Babylon because they're often mentioned in the Bible. They were often the enemy of God's people. And the civilization of the Babylonians, they made up their own story about how they thought the world had come into being. And it's an example of how a lone ranger God actually just creates slaves to do their work for them. In the story of the Babylonians, in this text called the Enuma Elish, and just make it really clear, this isn't a Bible story, okay? This isn't true. This is what they made up, what they thought happened. There's this chief god called Tiamat, and then there's a load of lesser gods underneath them. And the chief god, um, Tiamat, decides to kill the lesser gods. He gets fed up with them or annoyed at them or something. And so the lesser gods rally together. They appoint a god called Marduk, who's going to lead the charge, and they battle against Tiamat. And amazingly, these lesser gods manage to defeat this great chief god, Tiamat. And they take Tiamat's corpse, and they create the heavens and the earth out of this corpse. And then this god, Marduk, has a genius idea. He thinks, I know, I'm going to make some humans. And this is what he says in the text. He says, I will bring together blood to form bone, and I will bring into being a creature whose name shall be human. I will create humans on whom the toil of the gods will be laid, that they may rest. He says, we're doing too much stuff. Let's create some humans, and they can do all the work for us so that we can rest. And so he kills some other gods, he gets some more corpses, and he creates humans. And then the text tells us, he imposed the service of the gods upon them. That task is beyond comprehension. These lone ranger gods have needs, and so they create slaves. Actually, in this story, humans are just there to be the slaves of the God. They are selfish creations. And sometimes we think that God is like this. We think that actually God has created us to be his slaves, that all God wants is for us to do stuff for him. And we think that God only really likes us and loves us if we pray for hours a day and we read this many chapters of the Bible and we do this many serving slots each month to be doing this, that, and the other. And that always leads us to strive. We're always trying to do more because we never think we've done enough. Actually, we always think God's made me to do all these things for him, and I'm not doing enough of it. That means he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really love me. We never really feel the love of God. Many of us might think like that, but lots of people who don't know Jesus outside of the church think like that. They just think that God is this angry being who's made them and wants them to be their slave, his slaves, and actually gets angry with them when they're not. That's many people's conception of what God is like. So people might think, well, have your fun first and then become a Christian later. Kind of enjoy the fun while you can and then kind of when you're getting near the end, I guess, become a Christian and that kind of clamps down all the fun because I think actually this God just wants to control you and make you his slave. But that isn't what the God of the Bible is like. The God of the Bible is completely different. The God of the Bible isn't a lone ranger God. The God of the Bible is a triune God. He's a God who exists in Trinity, a God who is simultaneously one and three. And you won't actually find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's a word we use to summarize biblical teaching about God. And the Trinity tends to be something that as Christians, many of us just avoid or ignore. We either think this is too complicated, I can't get my head around it, I'm just going to leave it over there. Or we think even if we could begin to understand it, it's just not important to me at all, so I'm not going to bother thinking about it. But actually, I think that God has revealed enough to us that we can begin to grasp what it means for God to be one and three, to exist in Trinity. And then we can take a step, we can see the amazing impact that makes on how we relate to God and by viewing how and why he has created us. 
To understand the Trinity, you have to believe in and affirm three statements. Three statements which to us with our human brains seem to logically contradict each other, but actually describe who this God is. The three statements are that there is one God, God is three persons, and each of these persons is fully God. And when you can kind of hold those three together, affirm them all as true, you're beginning to understand what it means for God to exist as Trinity. So let's unpack those three. The first one is that there is only one God. The consistent, unquestioned message from the, throughout the Bible, right from the beginning in Genesis through to the end of Revelation, is that there is only one God. So, for example, in the Old Testament, King Solomon builds the temple, the place where God was going to live amidst Israel, his people. And when he's built the temple, he dedicates it, and he says this amazing prayer. And part of this prayer, he prays that God may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Also in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he's one of the guys who God used as his mouthpieces. He spoke to them and they communicated God's messages to the people. Through Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Later in the same chapter, he says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And then we come through to the New Testament. We find the same thing is affirmed. There is only one God. Paul the Apostle, when he's writing to his kind of colleague Timothy, he says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. This means that the Trinity isn't saying there are three little gods who kind of work together in a team. Now the Bible says there is one God. The second thing we have to affirm to understand the Trinity is that God is three persons. God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the important thing here is that the persons are separate. They're not all the same. So God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, and so on and so forth. They are separate persons. And we see that because in the Bible, we see all of them together at the same time doing different things. So the baptism of Jesus is a great example. You see the baptism of Jesus, and Jesus, God the Son, is there in the water. As he goes down and comes out of the water, God the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And at the same time, God the Father speaks his words of affirmation from heaven. You've got the Son, you've got the Spirit, you've got God the Father, three separate persons, all doing different things at the same time. We see it also in John's Gospel. In John 14, which is part of Jesus' kind of last teaching to his followers, the day before he's going to be executed on a Roman cross. And he talks about the Holy Spirit as the one whom the Father will send in my name. And he, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice there, the three persons doing different things. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has said. There are three persons in God, the Trinity. And that means it's not one God, one person uh, with different costumes at different times. It's not that over here he's got the God the Father costume on and over here it's God the Spirit costume on. It's not that it's God at different times of history. It's not God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels and God the Holy Spirit now. He's one God, but he's three separate persons for all eternity. And then the third thing we have to affirm, the thing which really makes this logically impossible to us, that gets us to understanding the Trinity, is that each of these persons is fully God. 
The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all fully and truly God. That means they're not kind of one third. It's not a jigsaw puzzle when you put the three together and you've got God. Or it's not a pizza you slice into three bits and you put it together and you've got the whole lot. Each one is fully God. Now, with God the Father, that's kind of obvious throughout the Bible. He's the one who creates and sustains. He's the one who rules over all things. With Jesus, we see time and time again in the New Testament the fact that he is God. John's Gospel opens, calling Jesus the Word, it opens saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Son is God. You also see in the title used for Jesus. So often throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord, and the word used there is kurios. And that word kurios was used when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And it was used for Yahweh, the name of the one and only living God. And so when the New Testament authors call Jesus Lord, they're saying this guy, he is God, as Yahweh in the Old Testament is. And then we see it also with the Holy Spirit. It's this fascinating story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. And they come, they lie to God because they say they're going to sell some property. They say they're going to give all the money into the church, and actually they don't. And they're told first, uh, Ananias is asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in the next verse, they're told, you've not lied to men, but to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Holy Spirit is God. So this third part of the thing is that each person is fully God. That means it's not kind of God plus some letter bits, lesser bits. It's not that it's three parts of a jigsaw that come together to make God. Each of the persons within the Trinity are truly and fully God. And of course, to us, these three statements are logically impossible. We can't reconcile that as humans, but I don't think we should expect to. Actually, we, the created things, shouldn't expect to be able to understand the one who has created us. We should expect that someone who creates us should be out of our comprehension, should be greater than us, should kind of twist our minds because we can't understand how great, how wonderful he is. But by holding these truths together, affirming each one as true, we begin to understand what the Bible teaches us about God as Trinity. So why is all this important? Why am I going on about this? How does this help us answer that question, why are you here? Why has God made any of us? Well, we said that the single God, the lone ranger God, creates out of need. He needs servants, or he needs slaves, or he needs someone to love him. But actually, God as Trinity doesn't have any needs. And God as Trinity, unlike the Lone Ranger God, who can't be all-loving because there's not been things for him to love, God as Trinity, for all eternity, has existed in a relationship of love. With the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Spirit, and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, for all of eternity, there's been this relationship of love within them. That means that God can truly be love. Love characterizes the core of who God is, Because for all of eternity, from the very beginning to the very end, there's no beginning, there's no end. God has existed loving within the Trinity. That means that creation wasn't out of his need. It wasn't to give him something he didn't have. Creation was an overflow of who God is. Creation was the love that God has always had within himself, overflowing, spilling out to create everything, to create us. There was so much love within God then actually it spills out to create us to be loved and to create us to love. The answer to that key question, why are any of us here, is that we're here because we've been made to be loved by God. 
and then to love in response. And you kind of see this in the Bible through the fact there's this consistent positive view of creation and humanity. So whereas in things like the Enuma Elish that I talked about from Babylon, it's a really negative view of who humans are. They're these ones who are there to, you know, to do the works of the gods and, and actually they get too noisy and the gods wipe them out. But um, in the uh, Bible, it's always a positive view. In Genesis 1, God creates over these seven days and each day it's good. And he creates humanity and he gives us this amazing opportunity. He tells us that we get to partner with him we get to rule over and to subdue the earth. We're not acting as his servants or his slaves. We get responsibility. We get to share in what he is doing in ruling over the creation. In Genesis 2, when God creates Adam and Eve, places them in the garden, it shows us that we as humans are made to live in close relationship with God. There's that wonderful image of God walking in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what we are created for. We are designed by this God who's overflown in love to be loved by him. And you see it somewhere like Psalm 8. There's this amazing statement about us as humanity in Psalm 8 where the psalmist is talking to God. He says, yet you have made him, that's humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God hasn't made us to be servants or to be slaves. He's made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's crowned us with glory and with honor. He creates us as an overflow of his love. But of course, the story went wrong. Because although humans were made to experience that love, to stay in that place with God, actually, we all rebel against God. And this is a love issue too. When Adam and Eve didn't trust God and they went and ate from the tree that God had told them not to eat from, it was a love issue. God was loving them, but they said, actually, God's love isn't enough for us. We think that if we do this, we'll find more satisfaction. They wanted to become like God when they saw the chance to know the knowledge of good and evil. Ultimately, they loved themselves rather than loving God. They think, I'm going to love myself, make myself better by eating from the tree, when actually God is the one who's meant to love them, and they're meant to receive his love. And the root of all human sin, all human rebelling against God, that's when we turn our heart away from God, is loving something other than God. God loves us and we're designed to love him, but we love something else. And ultimately, that means we reject God's love. But then, of course, the wonderful truth is, though we turn ourselves away, we rejected that love and we get rejected from it, God was not happy to abandon us to that situation. God was not happy to leave us in the mess that we had created. And so once again, this love that exists within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, for all eternity, loving each other, it overflows and it overflows in God's wonderful plan of salvation. Salvation is the Trinity's mission to bring you and I back into an experience of that love that has been within God for all of eternity. It's initiated, it's planned and purposed by God the Father. And then it's uh, kind of executed, implemented by God the Son as Jesus comes and lives and dies and is raised back to life. And then it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit, as he comes to live inside of us and to apply all that God has done for us. And this salvation is part of the overflowing of love, and it's a call back to experience that love. And we see this near the end of John's Gospel. In John 17, Jesus says this incredible prayer the night before he's going to be executed on the Roman cross, and he prays for different groups, and the last group he prays for, he prays for all the people who will believe in him. That includes any of us here who are followers of Jesus. And his prayer 
is that we might come to share in that love that God for all of eternity has expressed. He says, starting in verse 24, Jesus praying to God the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice the intertrinitarian love. You loved me, God the Father, before the foundation of the world, for all eternity, the Father loving the Son. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us, and then here's the key bit, and I will continue to make it known. Why? In order that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says he's going to continue to make it known. And he's talking there about the cross. The very next day, he'll continue to make God's name known. He'll continue to display God's, display God's love by hanging on a Roman cross, by taking upon himself all the wrath, all the punishment, all the judgment that we should experience for our sin. He willingly hangs there, expressing, showing, demonstrating the love of God for us in order that we might be brought back in. And he says the reason is that we might know the love with which God has always loved the Son for all of eternity. Jesus' purpose in coming was to draw us back into that position, that thing we're made for, to be loved by God and to love him in return. And it's when we look at the cross, when we see Jesus hanging there, taking upon himself the judgment, the condemnation, the punishment, the separation from God that we deserve, that we see the supreme overflow of the love that exists in God. God's love overflowing to bring us back into an experience of that love. Can I invite the band to come back up? This truth has so many applications, so many ways it shapes how we live, it shapes how we think. One thing it does is it shapes our view of God. Understanding that God exists in Trinity shows us that God really is love. Because for all eternity, he's existed as this relationship, this community of love. And for some of us here, we need to hear that. We need to hear that actually this God isn't a kind of hard taskmaster. He's not made us as a slave who's got this checklist and he's always thinking, God, they're just not doing well enough. He's a God who overflowed in love to create you to be loved. It's core to who God is. And then also this shapes our view of our relationship with God. As I've been saying, it's not that God's there with this checklist. It's not that we're here to serve God, to be his slaves. We're trying to do enough that he might like us, he might do good to us. Actually, we're made to be loved. And Jesus has brought us back into that love. Some of us need to hear this tonight because we need to stop striving. We need to stop doing. We live in a world which is infected by the disease of busyness. And we are constantly doing stuff. And so often we're doing stuff because we think our identity, what makes us worthwhile, comes from what we're doing. And we can think that related to God. We can think that related just to the world. And there's this pressure. And actually, busyness is a badge of success. We kind of think, if I can't tell my friends I'm busy when they ask me how I am, actually, I'm failing. And if my friend seems more busy than me, then clearly I'm the lazy one and I'm failing. And actually, the Bible says, no, no, God hasn't made you to be busy. He hasn't made you to serve and be a slave. He's made you to be loved. And he's made you to love in return. Some of us here tonight need to hear that and need to turn away from a striving, a, a trying to earn God's love, or a trying to do more and more and more to prove ourselves and to realize, actually, God doesn't love you because of who you are. God loves you because of who he is. 
God's love is integral to him. It's not integral to you. It flows from who he is. Another response is simply to worship. As we see and receive the love of God, love in our heart kind of grows up, it goes out, it explodes into praise and to worship of him. As we are loved and receive love, we love in return. That's what we're going to spend some time doing now. Can I invite you, if you're willing and able, to want to stand and engage with God's the band are going to lead us in a few moments' time. We'll take bread and wine, which is this wonderful picture, this way we physically remind ourselves of all that God has done for us, that supreme demonstration of God's love overflowing in action to bring us into that. Let me pray for us, and then these guys will lead us as we worship. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are all loving. We acknowledge that you are love, that for all of eternity, you've existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this wonderful eternal relationship of love. We thank you so much that you created us out of the overflow of that love, that you created us to be loved and to love. You haven't made us to be your slaves. You haven't made us to be your servants. And we thank you that even though we turned away from you, we rejected your love, we loved other things, you again overflowed in love to bring us back. Thank you, Jesus, that you were obedient to the Father's plan of coming, of living, of dying for us in order that we might be brought back into that relationship of love, that we might experience that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, now you live inside of us to pour the Father's love deep into us that we might know that. And right now, God, I pray, would you come, would you come by your Holy Spirit and pour out your love to each and every person here? Would we know that affirmation of we are loved, we are made to be loved and to love, I pray where there's a slave mentality here or where there's a a kind of striving mentality which thinks I've always got to do more and God's never happy with me I've never done enough. I pray, God, right now you'd shatter that. And I pray in its place you would bring a a recognition of an experience of your glorious love. And we pray as we worship now, would you pour your love deep into our hearts that we would know it and we'd feel it and we'd experience it. And would you stir our hearts to respond and to turn back to you and to declare our love and our adoration of you in response. Come and do your work, God. Move among us. Love us and receive our love. Amen.